Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Here is your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof, a nationally recognized health educator, author of the award-winning book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, and creator of the Talk Puberty app. And welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof. As mentioned in the first episode of the Puberty Prof's Fall Series Podcast, episode number 66, this fall is about explaining how the national sexuality education standards can be used as a tool to know what to talk with young people about regarding puberty and other age and developmentally appropriate topics. These standards are for educators, including school health teachers, to help guide units and lessons as recommended by professionals in our field. Yet, although they were created for someone like myself, a trained school health teacher who teaches sexuality education, and I'm now training future health teachers, that although these standards were created for professionals like myself, I recognize that these standards can also be used as a reference tool for parents and other caregivers. That's why this whole fall is focusing on it, and which today's topic, the specific area we're going to talk about of these standards is sexual health. So to help me out, I invited Anita Sheffer. She was on the podcast in 2021. Actually, Anita, I think your podcast, one of them, we had two episodes. We had two episodes of you in which I think... One of the episodes is still number one for being listened to in this whole entire podcast. Congratulations on that. Nice. Thank you. Awesome. Would you like to say hello to everyone and remind us of your background? Sure. Hey. Hi, Lori. Hi, everyone. It's so good to be back. Um, My name is Anita Sheffer, as Lori said, and I have a new title. I'm no longer a uh, presently teaching middle school health educator. I am officially a retired one as of July 1st. Congratulations. Thank you. And you've taught for how many years? 32, believe it or not, all at the middle school level and always health education. In which it's this is perfect. You're a perfect person to speak with regarding this topic of sexual health, because sometimes I feel that we get questions so much about what are we going to teach on this topic? Are you really teaching kids age appropriate things? So you have all these years of experience to help people understand what we actually do in that middle school setting. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have the experience under my belt at this point. And uh, I hope I can share some of what I've learned throughout the years and just conversations that I've had with students, parents, other teachers, both in and out of the field of health education. Well, thanks again for being here today. If we can now jump to what's written under the sexual health topic for the standards and for listeners out there, I will put a link for where you can find this PDF. It's available for free from a variety of organizations. 
And so you can look for it and I'll even put down the approximate page. Sometimes the page numbers are a little off depending upon how it downloads on your device. But if we can jump to the sexual health topic and Anita, do you mind reading what by the end of the second grade, what students should be able to do? Uh, let's see. So by the end of the second grade, students should be able to define reproduction and explain that all living things may have the capacity to reproduce. Okay. Now, although you haven't taught in the elementary school at in your district, I know I taught within my career, both in Catholic schools, as well as in a public school setting. Do you perceive that by the end of second grade, this is something of importance that students can understand? I think they can definitely understand this by the end of second grade. Perhaps the beginning might be a little slippery, but by the end of second grade, they're definitely questioning where, you know, that the puppies came from <laughs> that their dog had or, um, you know, the fish laid eggs and where did they come from? And so the topic of reproduction just can come very naturally and have absolutely nothing to do with humans especially if children are raised on a farm. Absolutely. They'll see that every single day and it'll be like nothing for them. Yeah. There are some sexual educators out there that are even saying we can teach this when children are younger because they'll ask questions of how did that baby get in there? You know, mom, how did you have a baby in your tummy? But it's actually the uterus that the baby's in. And so I've actually been told by some folks that we can teach this earlier. Yet typically in the K through 12 setting, we wouldn't teach it in kindergarten and first grade. Do you think, or what are your thoughts on that? Um, probably not. I mean, just coming from my own, I, um, this is just my own personal perspective. Um, I'm thinking that there would be some um, backlash from parents depending on what school district you're in or what state you're in perhaps. So, you know, there are definitely a lot of things that have to be taken into consideration. So let's go to the end of fifth grade and I'll read the first one. These are all under core concepts. If you're looking at this chart that Anita and I have in front of us, you would see that there are three things listed for by the end of fifth grade. There's only one by the end of second grade, but we're now we're jumping to by the end of fifth grade in which there's three core concepts. The first one reads, students should be able to explain the relationship between sexual intercourse and human reproduction. And right away, when I read that out loud, I go back to when I've spoken with parents for puberty nights or for puberty lessons, when I first meet with parents or other caregivers, and that phrase sexual intercourse sometimes gets people a little nervous. Sure. Yeah, agreed. And I don't think that's something that will ever change. You know, again, if I go back to year one of teaching in one district and I end in June at year 32 in a completely different district, that was always something that just made people quiver because it's the visual that we're going to be standing up in front of the room uh, giving this how-to class. And which we're not, we're not saying this is how you actually have intercourse. We don't say that, but I know like I'm thinking of one fifth grade 
talk or a series of talks that I had with young people. And somebody asked, first they asked, you know, why do we go through puberty? in which we go through puberty to develop adult-sized bodies, which includes the maturation of our genitals and the reproductive systems. That's a part of it. For one day, if we choose to and are able to, to have a baby, you know, that we can reproduce. And then usually somebody will say, well, what sex or how do you have a baby? And before I can even answer it, another child responds. Have you had that happen too? Yeah, I've definitely had that happen, uh, sometimes with quite a bit of misinformation <laughs> that was fed to the child. Um, so that's always interesting, trying to, you know, maneuver through all of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of valid information that maybe they've received from family members or caregivers, and then there's a lot of misinformation as well. So that's kind of where we come in. So this statement of explaining this relationship, the intent behind this from my professional experience is that young people are curious, why do we go through this puberty? And these body parts mature because one day, if we choose to and are able to, we can reproduce. In which I'll read the next statement too of what students should be able to do by the end of fifth grade. And it reads, Students should be able to explain the range of ways pregnancy can occur, which includes IVF, surrogacy. So this is because, again, talking about puberty, we're talking about these body changes, and it's just a natural conversation to have with young people in which, yeah, your bodies potentially will be able to do this. That doesn't mean you go out and do it. It doesn't mean that because some of us are still trying to figure out our right and our left hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I actually, I like that a lot because uh, this particular standard, because things have changed so dramatically in terms of uh, methods of reproduction that they have to be mentioned. And babies are not born the same or made, I should say, the same way they were made when, you know, you and I were children and, and just growing up or in the fifth grade for that matter. Um, my own daughters who are twins are IVF babies. And uh, it's interesting, you know, to have conversations with them about that now that they're older. Uh, but when they were younger, you know, certainly it might have been a little bit more difficult to explain reproduction based on that alone. Would you remind us what IVF stands for? Yes, it stands for in vitro fertilization. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Now, what's to me interesting is that, like I said earlier, sometimes parents and other caregivers or administrators might even question why are you going over this topic. I remember in one school district, I was questioned a lot by my, my director, my direct, like, oh, what are you going to say these, to these children? Or are you able to handle this? And the reality is that by the time children reach that fourth, fifth grade, they've already been exposed to things as much as we can even try to protect them in which our philosophy and our ethics in health education tells us, let's give young people the correct information. 
that they can even understand what they're seeing on TV or a movie isn't necessarily the truth. Just like cartoons isn't always the truth. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're exposed to so much when we're not around. And I think in their developing brains, it's very confusing. And so it's important to make sure that they're being educated properly. And while there are people that may not think that, you know, we're doing it properly or that it should be done by them, whoever they might be, uh, it's still our job to give them the correct information. Would you mind reading the third course concept? Sure. So again, this is by the end of the fifth grade. Students should be able to define STDs, including HIV, which has not gone away, by the way, and clarify common myths about transmission. Now, have you taught in the fifth grade? I have taught the sixth grade, which is pretty darn close because I get them in September after they were supposed to have seen the uh, infamous fifth grade video in June. And, uh, you know, just lends itself for some conversation because it's fresh in their minds. So, yeah. What's interesting is HIV, like I've always been asked to talk about HIV when I was brought in to talk about puberty talks. And part of that is the state mandate in New York of children are supposed to be taught basics depending upon the age and its age and developmentally appropriate, how it's like each grade is taught. For other STDs, I've never really went into further with other STDs at the fifth grade level. And I even had a full-time position at the middle school where I taught fifth, sixth, and eighth grade health. So HIV, I, to me, teaching in the fifth grade is about when, we, um, when we're talking about germs, like how can we ensure that young people have better hygiene, especially as they're beginning to go through puberty? So I've never went, delved into all the STDs in fifth grade because you're not able to give consent for having sex. So the transmission of STDs to me should not be there unless somebody's being inappropriate with a child, which is illegal. We need to get that child support and of course, figure out any STI, any STD kind of thing. But to me, it's by fifth grade, it's about knowing how to wash one's hands, knowing how to wipe oneself properly after going to the bathroom, not sneezing on everyone. And also if you see germs like a, a tissue or something else that has germs, somebody's germs, including from their blood, you see something lying there, you don't go and grab it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, with regards to HIV and other STIs, I think it's more about, um, I'll, I'll separate them for just a moment, you know, because again, with HIV, I think of some different things than I do with STIs and STDs. Um, but it's about, for example, if there's blood on the desk or if um, you're participating in a sport and someone gets, you know, clocked in the head and they're bleeding, it's about teaching kids that, no, you don't come into direct contact with that blood because of X, Y, and Z. And HIV would be one of those things. It's not about necessarily, you know, describing to them in detail 
the ways that you can contract HIV sexually. So there's different levels of teaching about HIV. Um, and yeah, with regard to STDs and STIs, until they have a full understanding of intercourse and why those infections could occur in the first place, I, I think that that would make for some difficult attempts at, at teaching those topics and, and those children understanding them. In which, like I said earlier, it is noted that it's age and developmentally appropriate to teach the difference between sexual intercourse and human reproduction, because this is how we uh, can reproduce as human beings. But there's risks involved in that if your partner has an STD slash STI that includes HIV. And for those of you that are like, well, what's the difference between STDs and STIs? I don't go into that with young people. It's It stands for sexually transmitted diseases or sexually transmitted infections. I've always preferred saying STIs. Yeah, I, I as of late, prefer STI. I know I was brought up saying STD, but uh, the longer I taught, the more I navigated toward STI because they are in fact infections. And, um, you know, there needs to be a clear understanding that based on that, they are treatable in some cases. And in some cases, the treatment may not work. So, you know, infections are kind of like that where disease, I think when children especially hear the word disease, they think of things like cancer, we'll say. Right. Now, what's interesting about this document with the standards, the National Sexuality Education Standards, there's a lot of things that are noted under core concepts. Yet at the same time, nationally for health education standards, we, we have become very skill-based. So what that means is helping young people understand how to make effective decisions looking at the pros and cons kind of thing. What is effective communication and how do we practice that? Self-management skills, goal setting, things that help us become better people, healthier, like healthier people. So when I look at these three core concepts, I, I want you as the listeners to understand that we don't necessarily go into so much detail all the time because we don't have a lot of time to teach school health. And what we're trying to do is, by the end of the fifth grade, have students have self-management skills to not pass unhealthy germs, to be respectful of their bodies with personal hygiene, too. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned the word communication. And I think that communication and types of communication always need to be included in whatever it is that we're teaching because that's really what it comes down to is being able to ask questions, being able to speak about topics such as this because, you know, as I tell my seventh graders, if you can't speak about it, then you shouldn't be doing it and you need to really have some conversations that can be quite uncomfortable at first. You know, and the other thing too, you know, when you're up in front of the classroom and, and you are teaching all of these topics, you have to know your audience. And by the time we're teaching sexual health, we should know our audience. You know, we're not jumping in in September, doing a couple of introductory lessons and then delving into sexual health. We usually wait a couple of months, you know, develop trust and 
comfort and you know then the kids are, are ready for that because they know us you know they feel better about it so i think um that's just something that everybody really needs to recognize again if you want to see the standards go to the link put in today's description and look at them if you are a parent or caregiver of a younger person this could be used as a, a tool to say okay at what age can I talk to my child, not even can, but perhaps you're motivated to talk with your child because they're seeing things out there. They're seeing things in the media. They might be hearing things on the bus, unfortunately, or in the playground or something. So we want children to be able to come to us as adults and get correct information. Um, But you can also look further in this document for the standards and see who, who are some of the people that put it together and some of the reasoning of why it's perceived that these items are age and developmentally appropriate. Now, before we go today, Anita, is there anything else you want to bring up regarding this topic of sexual health? So I think when it comes to dealing with young people and topics revolving around sexual health, that our own comfort levels as educators and as parents, guardians, caregivers, administrators, you know, that all has to be taken into consideration as well. And, you know, one person might feel more comfortable about teaching this particular topic in sexual health where someone else may not be. And again, recognizing that there are going to be children as well who have had exposure at home and some who have had none. And so we have to always set up our lessons so that they target each and every child in the classroom. And, you know, as long as people at home realize that, you know, this isn't always an easy topic to teach. And this is my bias but school health teachers are trained how to talk about a variety of sensitive topics. Like I know some people come to the field because they want to talk about nutrition. And I'm like, okay, first of all, we don't go so deeply into nutrition all the time because time limitations, but also we don't want to trigger disordered eating. And we don't, we know that all the factual stuff doesn't always make people eat healthier. We want them to analyze the influences. It's more skill-based. And regarding sexuality, we're trained how to talk, usually are trained how to talk about this topic, usually in most undergraduate or graduate programs for school health teachers, there's a specific course just for sex ed. Yeah. And you mentioned time being a factor. That's huge because, you know, just recently, actually, I put together a list of the topics that I teach And, you know, you're talking about a 20-week course, right? Most times it's 20, sometimes it's 10, depending on um, the grade and the school. So 20-week course, and I teach 32 topics. So how how does that happen? (laughs) How do you teach 32 topics in 20 weeks? But Mm -hmm. yet I do it. And so when I presented that to administration, they just kind of looked at the list and looked up at me. And they were like, we had no idea. And so it's changing a lot when it comes to curriculum writing, because, you know, that has to be taken into consideration, just how important all of these topics are. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Anita. 
I hope that you thought this conversation was interesting. I I, I certainly felt it was interesting. Absolutely. I hope you did oh, too. Yeah. Yeah, I love talking. I get excited about this. <laughs> I love talking about school health. I love it. And I love knowing that we have so many people out there that are trained helping these young people be as healthiest as possible. For listeners, I thank you for listening in. And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to go to my website, pubertyprof.com, or to email me at pubertyprof at gmail.com. And I'd love to answer questions or, or get back to you. If I can't do it in a specific email, I'll put it into a future episode. But I, again, thank you for listening in. And Anita, thank you again for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And once again, had such a good time speaking with you. So with that, this is the end of our episode. And I hope you have a happy and healthy day. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to pubertyprof.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by the Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's pubertyprof.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics.